So I'll begin by saying that today, traditionally, is known as Columbus Day, um, and and more recently known as Indigenous Peoples Day. And it it's funny because, how to say it, you know, in, in this part of the country, you know, it's called Indigenous Peoples Day, the recognition that when Columbus came, that was the the first wave of what essentially was a European genocide perpetrated on the indigenous peoples of this these continents. Um, but there are other places in the country where Columbus Day is celebrated as an Italian Heritage Day. It's almost the Italian equivalent of St. Patrick's Day, you know. What St. Patrick's Day is for the Irish, Columbus Day is for the Italians, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, it it's easy to see how from any one point of view, the other view would look suspicious, you know, like, you know, how can, you know, we're recognizing this genocide. How can you celebrate this group of white people versus, you know, who are you to, you know, trash the holidays of that we celebrated my family for generations, you know, all this. Um, and it's, it's just one sample of, you know, as as we all know, this ideological divide that we find ourselves in in this country, um, and I think it it presents us with some interesting questions. You know, just just this situation, um, those things that we believe are right. How do we know that they're right? You know, what does it mean to be right about things? You know. And then the very different question, you know, what, you know, how attached am I to being right? You know, all that stuff. Um, And of course, it's funny. There are some truths that are at least theoretically beyond the, the, you know, the ups and downs of, of different opinions, you know. Certainly nobody debates the truth of mathematics. You know, there are lots of people who don't like math, but no one disputes the truth of math in this culture. Um, science also is something that theoretically is, is uh, you know, when scientists agree on something, it would be hard for any intelligent person to, to disagree if they were familiar with all the evidence. Um, of course, science, even condition, conclusions of science are contentious in this culture. And just as science tells us about the truth of the physical world, the the wisdom traditions tells the truth of the inner world and of, of the path of growth and healing. You know, for example, a truth like the Buddhist truth of the three marks of existence. So Buddhism teaches that all all things in existence bear three marks anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and lack of substantial self. In other words, you know, if we look at any object, any person, any situation, it's going to be impermanent. It's not going to give us uninterrupted fulfillment. And it's going to be necessarily bound up with everything else in existence, you know. And it's almost it's almost funny the the attitude that Buddhism has, you know, in presenting these things. Like if if someone came and said, you know, I don't believe this, 
you know, Buddhism, you know, really wouldn't put up an argument. It would say, well, you know, live your life, you know, verify for yourself, you know. You can find the thing that's permanent and gives uninterrupted satisfaction, let the rest of us know about it, you know, like this kind of thing. Um, and so this is, in some ways, a roundabout way to to get to the topic of impermanence, which is actually my topic for tonight. Um, one way to talk about impermanence, or an, another word, a, a, a you know, an ostensibly more positive word to use for it is flow. You know, all things are impermanent. All things are in flow. Um, and framing it like that really highlights um, what it is about impermanence that can be particularly triggering to folks who have been wounded in their second chakra. Because the second chakra is all about relating to the watery aspect of life, the aspects of life that are just in uncontrollable flow, you know. And theoretically, you know, someone with a perfectly attuned second chakra would always be able to simply go with the flow and let go as as needed, you know. And and uh, whereas most of us, you know, have... Are wrestling with some kind of control issue, or you know, can I stop the flow? Can I hold on a little longer? You know, this this sort of thing. So all things are impermanent. You know, even this this strange cultural situation that we're in. You know, this moment in history that that is so bedeviling and you know consumes so much of our attention. Sometimes, this is impermanent. You know, um, so much about the world around us is impermanent. You know, certainly, you know, we know that human relationships grow, change. We get closer to some people. We get further from some people. Even our bodies are impermanent. Our bodies are in flux and in change and usually not in the right direction. (laughs) Usually not in the way that makes us happy, you know, this sort of thing. Like, uh, you know, there there are moments in life where someone, you know, exercises or adopts a diet and it makes positive changes. But, you know, the, the, the overall pattern of aging is one that, you know, most of the changes are not necessarily ones that you would choose, this sort of thing. Um, and so it's an interesting question. In a world of impermanence, in a body of impermanence, how do we find joy? How do we affirm love and joy? And I should say the reason that I'm talking about impermanence today, the, the thing that kind of sparked my, my interest in this particular topic, is that in addition to being Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day, today is also the first day of Sukkot the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, which is a a week-long festival. And Sukkot, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, um, it's it's a holiday that is devoted to commemorating the journey in the desert, the journey in the desert that the, the ancient Israels had for 40 years before they could enter their homeland. So the time that they were 
you know, living a life of impermanence. They were, they were not, they were in the journey. They were not at their homeland yet. They were longing to be in their homeland. You know, it was a time of exile. And yet at the same time, it's fascinating because those 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert, they were being led by Moses. And Moses basically talked to God every day. And so this this community, you know, according to the story in Torah, you know, had almost this direct pipeline to God. And they were eating manna from heaven every day, you know. And so it's, it, when, it's the nature of Sukkot, when they look back at this time, there's almost, there's almost a nostalgia for it. There's, because there was kind of an, intimacy with the divine they had in that period when they were wanderers, you know? And so there's a celebratory aspect towards Sukkot. And so it's it's fascinating because it combines a sort of reflection on the impermanence of life, but also a celebratory joyful aspect, you know? And so that always intrigues me, and it particularly intrigues me situated, you know, it always comes after the High Holy Days, after after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So it's always during this time of year when nights are getting longer and days are getting shorter, and to have this sort of joyful holiday celebrating impermanence fascinates me. And... And I'm particularly intrigued by just that almost archetypal idea that when we're in, when we're wanderers, when we're in transit, that that's where, that's the condition where we're more, um, that opens us more up to intimacy with the divine. You know, it, it it's striking also that in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they talk about the bardos, you know, after after we, you know, theoretically, according to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, we die, and then the soul experiences bardos, which are like in-between places of consciousness, where the soul is, and the soul is only in the bardos for a short time. Um, And the possibility, according to Tibetan Buddhism, the possibility for achieving enlightenment is very high in the bardos. Um, But usually the you know, typical souls are just terrified and disoriented and then flee and eventually are drawn to to the energy of sexual intimacy and then reincarnate from there, you know. Um, But that whole idea, again, of being in the in-between place, um, being in the the place of transition, a place that, that has a higher possibility of connecting with the divine. So there's something interesting about that. And of course, the whole question about how do we find love and joy? How do we affirm love and joy in a world that is impermanent, in a world that is changing? Um, It raises the question, it forces the question in many ways, what endures through the impermanence? What stays the same when everything else changes? You know? And it's, it, it fascinates me to, to frame the question like that in particular because, and this might sound like an odd connection, um, but it's, it's related to the geometric idea of symmetry. 
And, and what do I mean by that? So if you'll indulge, indulge me with a couple minutes of geometry here. If you think of the letter A, you reflect the letter A, it looks the same. You reflect the letter B, it looks, it looks like a backwards B, it changes. You know, so A stays the same under that reflection. Meanwhile, a letter like S or Z, if you flip it over 180 degrees, it looks the same. Now, if you do that to A, it looks like an upside-down A. It changes, you know. If you look at the letter H, that's when you can flip vertically, flip horizontally, flip it over 180 degrees, and it always looks the same. So that has more symmetry, you know. But then if you start thinking about reflecting over a slanted line or rotating just some small angle, then, of course, the H, even the H will look crooked, you know. But then if you think about a circle, you could reflect a circle over any line, and it would stay the same. You could rotate it through any angle, and it would stay the same. So a circle is the shape that stays the same when everything else changes, you know. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not an accident at all that many of the world's religious symbols have the the visual symbols have elements of symmetry to them, you know, the cross and the yin-yang, these sorts of things. Um, and not only visual symmetry, but also there are lots of symmetries, you know, more, more formal symmetries in religious teachings, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, a symmetry between self and other, you know, or Forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. This symmetry between forgiving and being forgiven, you know, this sort of thing. And so, what is it, what is the, what is, what aspects of our life are impermanent? And, and what's the, what's the part that doesn't change, you know? And I think the way I would frame it is that, the ego and the egoic world, the world experienced by ego and the world that that ego attaches to and fixates on, that's impermanent. Um, but there's a part of us that has, as it were, an intuition of eternity, a part of us that that has, as it were, a foot in eternity. You know, Buddhism has this idea of the four illimitable minds, the four mind states without limit, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, four mind states that, that, that speak to qualities that, that go deeper than ego and ultimately uh, transcend the limit of ego. Um, Christianity talks about the theological virtues, the three things that last forever are faith, hope, and love. And it's funny, I really don't see any big contradiction between those two lists, you know, and the, the, the four liminal lines of the three theological virtues. You know, if you have, you really have all, all of one list, you're probably going to have most of the other list, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and of course, all these words that we have about eternity, you know, are necessarily partial. I mean, uh, how can I say... Language itself, we, you know, we live in, a, in a, a culture that is absolutely fixated on language and thinks that language is the be-all and end-all and, 
you know, and it's, it's an aspect of control. You know, when we have words for something, we can control it, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and it's the nature of, of our, you know, the aspect of us that is in touch with the eternal that all our words are partial at best. Um, so though, as far as living with joy in a, in a permanent world, uh, there's a wonderful little uh, line from William Blake. And it goes something like, um, he who binds himself to joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses it as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Um, and it's a, you know, a profound teaching on, on disattachment and allowing, which I think are essential to uh, holding a world of impermanence with love. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. First, I'll share it with the Zoomies. So I have the Blake quote at the top from the pre-Socratic Heraclitus, a famous quote. No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. The great Buddhist teacher Nagarjuna said, the universality of change when completely understood is seeing into the heart of things and the mind that thus understands is the mind that truly seeks the way. Only Frederick Emile simply said, all appears to change when we change. Santayana said, to be interested in the changing seasons is a happier state of mind than to be hopelessly in love with the spring. Of course, the famous one from Gandhi, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. Uh, Always a, always a very challenging one to reflect on. Juan Ramon Jimenez said, a permanent state of transition is man's most noble condition. The great psychologist Eric Erickson said, it is only in our lifetime that faith in change has gradually given way to a widespread fear of and superficial adjustment to change itself and a suspiciousness concerning faith itself. Anne Mara Limburg, a wise woman who experienced tremendous sorrow in life, said, only in growth, reform, and change, paradoxically enough, is true security found. The poet W.H. Auden said, we would rather be ruined than change. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Sidney Harris said, Our dilemma is that we hate change and love at the same time. What we really want is for things to remain the same, but get better. (laughs) 
Ajahn Chah said, if you hold on to any expectations, you miss the wisdom. It is impermanent. Be the one who knows, the witness to it, so, to it all. This is how trust grows. Rachel Naomi Remen said, How strange to think that great pain may be impermanent. Something in us all seems to want it, want to carve it in granite, as if only this would do it, do full honor to its terrible significance. But even pain itself is blessed with impermanence. Joyce Carol Oates said simply, I never change, I simply become more myself. Octavia Butler said, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. James Richardson said, easier to keep changing your life than to, than to live it. You know, something fascinating there. Mark Nepo said, the glass blower knows Well, in the heat of beginning, any shape is possible. Once hardened, the only way to change is to break. Sharon Salzberg said, life is like an ever-shifting kaleidoscope, a slight change, and all the patterns alter. Stephen Batchelor said, the moment we decide to step decide to stop and look at what is going on, like a swimmer suddenly changing course to swim upstream instead of downstream, we find ourselves battered by powerful currents we had never even suspected, precisely because up until that moment, we were largely living at their command. Tara Brock said, a crisis has the power to shatter our illusions, to reveal that in this impermanent world, There is no ground to stand on, nothing we can hold on to. The poet David White said, I think emotion is the breaking of bonds, physical bonds inside the body, where what is not being said is just about to be said, and you don't realize how much willpower you've been using to hold back that revelation. So it's a breaking apart of these bonds, just as if there were some kind of ocean inside us, some kind of river, some kind of fluid that is suddenly allowed to flow. And it takes place naturally with a gorgeous kind of symmetry through tears and through the breaking down of what we thought was ourselves. And so emotion is a kind of diagnostic that you're on the edge of revelation. Huno Diaz says, It's never the changes we want that changes everything. Very simple and very true. Steve Maraboli said, Life is momentous if you... uh, Life is monotonous if you don't allow for synchronicity. Through the years, I've learned that chance encounters aren't random. They are beautiful people and moments that can change your life if you let them. Synchronicity is the font with which God writes. Grace Mamenikin says quite bluntly, there's a fundamental difference between changing for the better and growing up. <laughs> Michael Cuey says, everything changes, but wisdom stays the same. Live with love and be aware. No more is needed.
And Niels Horn, who was a student of Patro Rinpoche, summed up his teaching, use the time of your life, develop your inner happiness, recognize the impermanence of all outer pleasures. And finally, a fortune cookie that I got years ago that has always stuck with me. Fortune does not change men, it unmasks them.